and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academy roundtable pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Katya Gorecki. I almost said palindrome, Katya, that, which is not a I, thing. I am not a palindrome. <laughs> That's not even... I mean, just, no. I don't know why. I just, it, it was the flow that I was on. But anyway, how's it going? <laughs> Well, now I feel sad that my name's not a palindrome. Like, my name, like, yeah. Try to figure out how to do it. It's not really a good way to, you could change it. Kayak, kayak is a, that's the closest you can probably do with, like, the letters in your name. And it's not pleasant. I hate that. I don't want it. I don't want it. People, I've already had so many, like, weird mispronunciations of my name in my life. Nope. Cat Yeah, there's no way to do it. You're right. And now that we've offended every Eastern European that listens to this episode. Well, none of this is the topic today, but I'm finding it fascinating. So this is your topic. What are we talking about today? So we are talking about what I feel like both a timeless and also timely issue. We're talking about quiet quitting, mostly because I think it is one of the sillier things I've heard about. And yet, like, in, in its bubble, had so much discourse. And now, as of at least the last several weeks, rage quitting is now a thing. And so, like, the ongoing discourse of like what are jobs anyway and how are we getting them i just i don't know i find it interesting of like how we are continuing the conversation of shaming people for finding ways to get paid we should do some context for this though too because you originally wrote the blog for this in october really (laughs) yeah october 6th the beginning of october was when you proposed this episode october 6th was when you was when you proposed this it is as we record, we don't usually say, but as we record, it is January 17th. I so thought it was like, I wrote it in like around Thanksgiving, but I, you, no, I trust. No, it, it was posted October 6th, which means, frankly, given the way we actually do the blogs, probably you wrote it like it a September. few days before. Yeah, a few days before yeah. that. So because we cause sometimes we post, it's at least a day, if not a week after it's finished being written. So, yeah, it's been something that, you know, we were talking about when it was in the news and it was weird because it was in the news like every fucking day and people no, were talking it was a lot about of, it. Like it was excessive. Yeah. It, it there's always like, these terms coming up that like have been coined by, you know, the Washington Post of the world to describe whatever hiring crisis is, is happening. Mm-hmm. Like that one, everyone, and the amount of like TikTok, Twitter, like breath, and brain expenditure that was wasted on this topic was like kind of impressive actually. And then, so, I mean, we were asked, people asked if we were going to talk about it and we were like, I mean, it's kind of a cultural thing. That is kind of our jam, but also it's a hard thing to talk about. You know, eagle eyed viewers might notice that there are only two of us here today. Eagle eared. I don't know if you say eagle. They're not viewers or listeners. I don't know. I like that because while I recognize that eagles do have actually, Okay, sidebar. Money ears? Eagles have ears? Like, they can hear, obviously. They, is, are those ears? Someone tell yeah, us. I mean, yeah. Someone message into the show and I tell us not about a, eagle ears. I'm not a bird scientist, but my understanding is that they do, that birds or, do have... Ornithologist? Is that what they are? Yeah, I can't pronounce that. Okay. <laughs> my understanding, though, is that birds do have an ear-type Thing. structure. Yeah, they do. I remember yeah. watching this mostly because of some very goofy videos about owl anatomy, which if mm. I can find them, I will share well, yeah, them in the show notes. Yeah, birds communicate via, you know... And Anyway, this is a very productive sidebar. But anyway, this was a hard one to book because we talked about it and it was just sort of a, it's a hard thing to even talk about. Not because, so actually all five of us as regular hosts, we kind of like our careers. So it's not even just that. It's just, it's an odd thing to talk about to where everybody was like, oh, do I really want to, I mean, how do you talk about that without sounding like you're complaining about your employer? And then like, how do you book a guest? We can't book any guests because people are like, oh, no. I mean, because if you really were like actively quiet quitting, as it were, you know, appearing on a podcast to talk about it, sort of ruins that. Yeah. (laughs) So, 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 um, so you found somebody though, and how does, how's this going to (laughs) work? Well, I will, yeah. So our guest today, I will have introduced herself in a moment, but is Ani. Yeah. Ani, if you want to introduce to thine self. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Nice, yeah. to meet you. nice to meet you. I think quickest way to intro me is have a PhD background, also have a background in HR and sort of the recruiting world, but now I'm and more consulting. So my path as far as like, oh, do we have a person on the show who is quiet quitting? I think no, but in fact, <laughs> too much like the opposite. I am like I still suffer from good student syndrome. So I think I lean more in the camp of like, you do too much and then you might burn out. So not to like go onto a rampage, but I have so many thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Maybe we can just get into it. So I feel like it's kind of silly to define quiet quitting for the listener. But just in case somehow you miss or maybe have forgotten the media daily. It was October. It was October, which in the yeah. current media, yeah, in the current media ecosystem. I mean, Twitter is imploding, which wasn't happening then. So honestly, it feels like it's been a lifetime. Yeah. But anyway, quiet quitting. I, well, actually, and that's part of the thing is it's like I actually looked up different definitions coming mm-hmm. from like various news outlets about what quiet quitting was. And there's variance in what people mean. But essentially, like, it boils down to people not quitting their job, but mm-hmm. doing less at their job. So basically, it's the opposite. Well, not really the opposite, but it's like the middle ground between trying to get fired actively, which I don't think is a thing that people typically do. Although, not typically, it depends. Typically, I, I, it does happen, I suppose. But like the top performer, like what the middle ground is. And the other phrase for it, which I actually think is more descriptive, is like the act your wage movement. Mm-hmm. Wage, not age, realize I'm slowing that a little bit. But and basically the idea of like you're doing the thing that you are supposed to be doing you're fulfilling your contractual obligations but you're not going above and beyond and all these outlets are basically discussing like that this is a response to you know people not seeing especially like raises that keep up with inflation i think last i'm forgetting the number that's on my head but i believe last fiscal year or last yeah last fiscal year like the inflation was what five percent six percent total is what it shook out to be but high not good and a lot of people got weight got raises that either weren't even close to that if they were had raises at all and we're just like, cool. Well, if you're not going to pay me, I'm not mm-hmm. going to do bonus work. Yeah, which is a reasonable take. So here's my thing with it. I saw this, oh God, probably for the first time, the end of the summer, people were talking about it. And it was, I caught the news story on, I don't know if it was a CNN or an MSNBC or an ABC or maybe a Fox News. I actually watch Fox News. If our listeners, I think, know that I watch all news networks because I am a crazy That's person okay. who it is, but like, but I am very good with, I am very yeah, good at disassociating. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, you know, I always I think of like all of my media ingesting as research. It's oddly why I'm good at my job is that I'm able to just like absorb television and mostly not have it affect me probably because i was already nuts but anyway so all the networks the major three news networks your msnbc your fox and your cnn they all got this particular bug up their asses basically the same week at the end of the summer yeah. beginning of the fall and where the people are quiet quitting the kids are quiet quitting blame the millennials and the avocado toast that kind of thing and, and it the, was yeah, um, and the gen z kids uh, or the people who recognize that gen z is no longer 12 which no, but that not was the, many reporters was the problem the yeah they didn't right right? they like they were and then there were some people who who actually brought this up right they were like well you know the millennials are doing this and and then there's always like the younger reporters who come on and say i'm a millennial and i'm 35 dude there's millennials who are 40 this is not they're not kids anymore like there are millennials there are millennials who literally have grandchildren what are you talking about right like it's not that kind of issue anymore because my initial thought when i heard it was quite putting on the people who are like going to work and they're not doing the job and they're just seeing how long it takes to fire them. That's not what most people mean. What most people mean is you're going to work and you're doing the bare minimum or you're doing and by the bare minimum exactly the work that you're paid for and you're not going above and beyond looking for advancement. And every every person my age or older who reported on this story acted like this was some unheard of ridiculous thing. You know, I was always taught back in my day that, you know, that like what you want to do you worked for the you know you, you behaved like the job you wanted not the job you had and you did and i'm just like i'm just like and i'm and i'm listening to this going what the fuck is wrong with you people like and there was and i was one and these are reporters who i respect by the way i'm not even saying like like I'm, i it would be very easy to lay this on the door of fox news and no that's not what i'm doing i'm saying this is a thing where the fox people the cnn people the msnbc people all sort of agreed like yeah basically everything i think short of the jacobin right we're all like oh well what's happening is they're what they're doing is they're going in and it's it's lazy because what you want to do is you want to show that you can show initiative and everything and it's like well, they're not showing that they can show initiative. You've got a lot of people who, you know, you know who's showing initiative? All the people who quit their job to drive Uber because it's a better paying job. That's fucking mm-hmm. initiative. OK, like that's what initiative is. Or people who literally, you know, you know, they, you know, ah, I'm doing my side hustle. It's my YouTube channel or whatever. Or, you know, hey, I do an academic podcast because academia is a little different. You know, just the situation that like I live in because I have a job which is sort of different from my research. Right. Like I, I, I do pop culture studies, but I also have a straight job for the University of Pittsburgh where 
they pay me essentially to grade papers and to teach young people stuff that I know. And it's just sort of understood that I'm doing other stuff like like, like academia yeah. is weird, right? right? <laughs> like, I, it's a weird space. But like arguably in my position, I am doing things that aren't part of my job, but also Pitt doesn't own my research, right? So it's a little different than if you were like some person who's who's working for a Google or an Apple or a Microsoft. And the complaint is, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll use Twitter I, because yeah. Musk did the thing where he's like, Musk is like, I want people who are willing to work extreme hours. And it's like, <laughs> but you don't pay me to like, you pay me what I'm worth. So why should I work harder? And it's like, so you can prove your worth more. This is essentially asking me to buy into the capitalist system. Implicit, well, uh, yeah, it it's also weird. assumes that you receive a raise. I mean, I think actually, yeah. I was thinking about like the timing of it, mm-hmm. like the timing of a lot of this was happening was immediately after a lot of people, especially in corporate environments, have probably just had their end of fiscal year reviews, right? Mm-hmm. End of summer, like middle to end of summer is like where a lot of places like you will find out what your raise is, if at all. Because I think the other thing about quiet quitting it, when a lot of people, I guess I want to point out, we have been ragging on workers essentially in one way or another since the beginning of capitalism. Sure. I kind of wish, kind of wish Hannah were here because I'm sure she's got like 19th century examples like living on top of her head. Also, mm-hmm. like there's actually a lot of 19th century literature making fun of or like either making fun of workers or like extolling the virtues of workers who go above and beyond. Like this is a genre of literature that has existed for ages. Can I be Hannah? Can I be Hannah for a second? Yes, if be you, Hannah for a second. Yeah. So if you read most of Dickens, this is yeah, literally exactly. all of Dickens. <laughs> like I don't need to. I mean, I mean, I'm gonna say Little Dorrit, which I've not read, but I'm just guessing. But I. I know it's a theme of great expectations and it's a theme of David Copperfield and it's a theme of Oliver Twist because like yeah. the poor house and taking advantage of hell it's a theme of a Christmas carol like is literally oh. that that Scrooge is overworking Cratchit like this is Dickens whole thing so yeah this you know, like next week the part of Hannah will be played by Hannah Rogers again <laughs> oh that's amazing I was gonna say it's also a weird gross wonderful gift of like the ancient world that like just funnels mm-hmm. all the way down it's like you have like all of these Greek tragedies that like have an interlude of like oh the lazy well slave and like that was like the big joke it's like because you're supposed to whatever slot you have in life you're supposed to want to do it eagerly and then that just like gets like mapped onto the surf in feudalism and as we all know capitalism is trying to just like recapitulate like feudalism for people without capital right so (laughs) yeah yeah and if we didn't mention ani is also a early no not early modernist early modern yeah early modernist okay great my brain just fell out of my skull for a second and i was like what are the words (laughs) anyway so ani is also an expert in all the way more history historical examples than i have but i think it is important to remember because like we have this this thing in pop culture in general which we've talked about many times on many episodes of like immediate like we, we think that whatever's happening now is like historically never occurred before and very important but no mm-hmm. we've been doing this is what humans do like quiet quitting is just like a new catchphrase for something we've been doing for ages and not only have we been doing it for ages it's just my frustration with it is the the utter gall of pretending it's new when previous generations were defined by this so like right yeah. now we have this thing where the gen zers they don't want to work kids today they don't want to work which is the same fucking thing we said about the millennials and the gen xers and the fucking baby think, boomers did, it's literally when like, you do it yeah yeah it's just a, old people are like oh my generation had oh god i'll, ne- I'll never forget that there was a the television show survivor survivor had one season where it was like millennials versus gen xers and in fact it might even been millennials versus gen x versus boomers and then they had this gen xer guy complaining this this is like 10 years ago this gen xer guy complaining about the millennials saying you know my generation was defined by hard work but these kids today and i'm like fuck you i'm in your generation we were not (laughs) like literally we were defined by we were defined by being damn near homeless and wearing flannel that's what we were defined by (laughs) yeah my my personal favorite when i have like i have a few people who were absolutely hippies in my general social circle who were starting to talk about this and i was like wait a second you literally were like living in a Lived van in a commune probably <laughs> exactly. right like 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 did we did, like was there an entire decade of your memory that just fell out of your brain which like right. maybe fair 
corporate world like i was i have a gen x cousin who you know mm-hmm. i care for very deeply not in a gross way wow it's like i just tried to make the joke of like i know a gen xer anyway it fell flat some of my um, best friends are gen xers one of my best friends some of my i feel friends. like this is the what's the aspca commercial like, like i know so i was talking to my cousin and he was talking about quiet quitting and he was like this is so stupid because when i was first entering the workforce it all like the buzzword was like engagement like none of you are engaged yeah. enough like, how do we improve engagement and it's like so it's just like recycled to like okay Katya, going back to what you were saying about like a lot of this happens after people got their raises which obviously did not even like match with inflation i feel this is going to sound like conspiracy theory but i feel so much of this is like how do we get extra value out of workers when we like had to begrudgingly pay them a little bit more than we wanted to anyway so it's like like kind of trying to like i don't want to use the term gaslight but it's trying to like sort of create a scenario and maybe mav this goes to your point of like why is it on every news channel create like an ethos of like oh my gosh maybe i should give more to this company it's like no you should never give more at least like well and i think that the thing for me with the time the timing of it is it's like i'm always really curious when i see all of these conversations like independently showing up in many news networks i'm just like i feel like somewhere there was the equivalent of a barroom conversation yeah a lot of people had that we're seeing the after effects of in some you know i don't think it's that that i don't think it's that sinister but also that organized right like what i I think it's more well i don't think it's like either i'm not attributing like it being sinister or organized it's more like it feels like there is a discourse happening that a bunch of journalists and people are like that we don't have access to well, and see, I think we do, though. Manifest. I, see, I think we do have, no, we access, have access to it. The, to the symptoms of it. Well, no, I think, no, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I think that we're literally seeing it happen in real time. So I think what we are doing is we are experiencing the parallel fault, right? Like, I don't think people are thinking it through. I've watched so many of these interviews and there are a few think pieces, but mm-hmm. mostly it's far more people talking on panel shows that like ours, you know, but like, you know, more important ones on bigger networks, but it's hey, people talking on panel. But 12 it's, listeners. But we have more than that. But not, more, not many more. No, we have we have, we have an order of magnitude. Listeners. <laughs> no, but but no, my point is, I do think I think what ends up happening is we have people who are who are having panel discussions where they are experiencing the cultural anxiety in front of them. And what we're seeing is we're not seeing the planning. We're seeing sort of parallel thought reinforcing itself before our very eyes where people mm-hmm. sit there and they go, well, are the youth, you know, you know, you always fit of the youth. Are the youth, are they really quiet kidding? It's like, well, I heard this and I heard that. And then they're expressing their anxieties of back in my day, yeah. this happened. Like, I don't think there's, I don't think it's thought out at all. Like, w- like when you're saying we're not privy to it. No, I think that the oh. first time they're having that conversation is when we watch it live on the air. Somebody said, Hey, we should do a segment on this quiet quitting thing that they've heard about. They did a little bit of research and then they get caught up in the, well, I don't know why, you know, I know I had to work hard. So why don't they want to? It's just buying into, depending on the network, either neoliberalism or neoconservatism implicitly and sticking to it. That's feel, the problem. Do we feel like there's like an accidental meta situation happening where all the journalists and the people in the discourse are now doing not necessarily the bare minimum, but not that they are quite quitting. But if we think of quite quitting as doing the bare minimum, then they're just like, okay, what should we talk about as far as um, the workforce? And so we're just going to Google around and one person said this thing. And so we're just going to repeat that argument over and over again. So they're like phoning in the same. I don't know if it's necessarily that, but I think the other piece of this and like, okay, this is the part where it's like, I'm not trying to sound conspiratorial, but it is somewhat conspiratorial, Mm -hmm. but this is how clickbait works. We know from lots of research that negative emotions often drive more clicks than positive ones. So like the fact Mm -hmm. that quiet quitting annoys, you know, several of us on this show enough to talk about it might actually be part of the reason why that kept, I mean, like not necessarily why people were publishing the articles, but like the surprising amount of conversation about this thing like as we're mentioning historically is like we talk about this all the time we just use different words for it or there's a slightly different framing but from like a journalist point of view like at the end of the day especially now it's like you have to create traffic and like negative grumpiness is more likely to generate engagement on the internet but i think there's another piece of this that i ran into when i was trying to prepare for the show is there's not a lot of good data so a lot of the statistics i was finding that were being cited in these articles are based off of surveys of workers mostly it seems 
second like white collar job yes. which i think is another aspect of this yeah. of like the, i think the other thing about fight quitting is it seems to be a largely white collar yeah. office worker conversation which i we should i think we should talk conversation, about conversation yes but bit. i don't think so i don't think it's a phenomenon i think it's a conversation because no. i think anybody below that doesn't have time to think about it they're just doing the damn thing right well, I think like the, I, yeah, I think there's a different conversation about what it means to quiet quit in white collar, especially in remote right. work versus not. But a lot of the surveys are basically relying on people to self-report. And mm-hmm. like, as someone who writing a survey is a major part of my job, like self-reporting, like I, I, as a researcher, I have a lot of questions about the right. methodology, some of which is not necessary, which is not immediately transparent of these studies, because like self-reporting is super valuable. I mean, it's, it's super valuable. It's a valid research methodology. On the other hand, and whether or not it's a candid description of what's actually happening is a big question. And especially, I think, when you're asking about people's jobs, even though it's anonymous, mm-hmm. like we know that it's some, like like it, we just know as like human beings that like we are not always candid about our workplace performance or things like that outside of our workplace. Mm-hmm. Because as Matt mentioned on top of the show, like there can be consequences to that. So it's like I have a lot of questions about the validity of a lot of that research, not because the researchers did poor, like did their job poorly, but just like I've so like I, I just have many curious curiosities about like the steps they took to make it valid but the other thing is like beyond people like beyond self-reported like anecdotes or Mm -hmm. these surveys and beyond like what is in the discourse itself there's not a lot of clear data Mm -hmm. about especially about things like how like like a lot of this is being response to like raises that is lining with conflict not inflation we don't have publicly available data about Mm -hmm. what the raise like what raises are in the last year we know what inflation is but we We don't know know what the average raise is right not yet we will eventually but even that will be self-reported some tax information i can do but i'll can i do it uh, the way i would do it because i'm going to look at this more i'm not an economist i'm a cultural theorist right so i'm Mm -hmm. going to look at it and go well wait what are we looking at correlative given the way that we're looking at reporting right i don't think it's i think it's more about the anxieties because you said we're seeing it as though there is a as though there is a conspiracy of the news organizations and i don't think it's a conspiracy but in addition to the raises and i don't know i don't know what the raises were of cnn's employees or fox's employees or msnbc's employees or usa today's or buzzfeed's or whoever right what i do know is that i first started hearing about people talking about quiet quitting in like september right september october and i know that in the last three months, four months, MSNBC, Fox, and CNN have all had mass layoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which means that everyone who still has a job there has a lot of anxiety because they've been forced to work harder. Now, having been someone who's been on both sides of a layoff before, I've been I have been laid off and I have been a remaining person at the company when layoffs happen, that means likely your raise is smaller if you get one at all. Sometimes when layoffs happen, it's really bad and you don't even get a cost of living raise because your company like like I lived through the dot, the dot com bubble burst and there's like a lot of oh well we can't give you a cost of living raise cuz if we do we will go out of business and it's not hyperbole there like that can be a fear right so maybe you didn't get a raise at all and since they had to lay off half your friends now you're probably working twice as hard so maybe it feels kind of you know wait a minute i'm working my ass off and then there's these kids you know it's always the kids these kids who say they don't want to work as hard because they want to enjoy their life and they have stress and you know and are not like and so that that's one of the things so there's in the original post that i shared there's i cited a gallup poll to pull some of these statistics Mm -hmm. and one of the things that the gallup poll identifies is that you are more likely to hit to meet the criteria of quote-unquote quiet quitting if you are younger but one of the interesting things is they basically try this up to and you can go like read the full findings it's actually quite interesting and they were like no this is actually this is a manager they tracked it up at least in part to a management problem they kind of sidestep compensation i think largely because it wasn't a focus of the survey but one of the things i think that it also is part of this culturally is like yes to all of the like what's happening at cnn what's happening to all these news agents but i think the other thing that's happening culturally is there's a cultural disconnect and ani you actually sent me something recently about this it's like a cultural disconnect between the way of experiencing the world between Gen Z and millennials and the way of experiencing the world of their managers. And as more millennials are getting into management, I'm curious to see if this shifts because there's a, I believe it was actually a market study that was published by Microsoft. I will see if I can find it again. I know, I remember it being public, but they did an analysis of like the kinds of things that connect with different generations. And they basically found that boomers and Gen Xers have more in common than they do with millennials and Gen Z. Not only do they have like more in common, they have 
very few, if any, cultural intersections. And so from a marketing perspective, I mean, they were mostly focused on like what kinds of things mm-hmm. connect with these people from a marketing perspective. And so they were focused on like advertising, essentially. So, mm-hmm. you know, take it with a grain of salt. But they were basically going like, OK, there's almost no cultural overlap, which means there's no ad campaign you can make that connects with boomers and Gen X and millennials and Gen Z. And it makes me wonder if the same thing is happening in the workplace. It's like the kind of workplace that supports productivity for boomers and Gen X, which is presumably the way that lots of organizations that have been around for more than five minutes are structured, isn't going to work for millennials and Gen Z. And we're even seeing that remote work too. Part of me wonders that because not so much, this is a whole different show, but the divisions of Boomer, Gen X, or Millennial, Gen Z, or Greatest, if we're going to go back further, these are entirely artificial. They're demographic, not not sociological. Sociology and cultural theory have kind of picked them up as sort of a shorthand. But if I were doing a real academic paper, I probably wouldn't use it because I would want more granularity. And the mm-hmm. reason is because is I, I think that those connections have more to do with with age rather than group culture. So if you want to trust the original, like the Copeland definition of Gen Xer, I am a Gen Xer and as young as you can be and be a Gen Xer cut off. And I was born in 1974. It was supposed to cut off in 75. I was cut at the, I was born at the end of seven in August of 74. So, you know, I'm about as young as that gets right. Which would make me technically a Gen Xer and it would make my younger brother who's two years younger than me, a millennial. But like, are we really that different? No, we were raised Mm -hmm. in the same house. We're two years apart. Right. So as an old millennial, he's probably more like me. But on the other hand, Wayne, who our other co-host, technically a Gen Xer, but he's more than a decade older than I am. So in many ways, I, you know, I probably have more. I mean, basically, there's the same age, the same level of age between me and Wayne as there is between me and Katya. So like, who am I more like, you know, <laughs> and I think it's it has I mean, it, human experience cannot be, reduc- cannot right, be right. reduced to a single category. I am but, shocked. But in some ways it can, right? Because when I'm talking about right. the office workplace, if, well, I'm an exception, right? Because I'm 48, but I never had kids. Other 48-year-olds are often trying to figure out, like their concerns are, how do I make sure I have enough money? My kid's going to be going to college in another year or two. That's not the experience that any Gen Zer is looking for, right? No. It's not the experience that most millennials are looking for. Even the millennials who have kids, their kids are relatively young, right? So also the cultures around having kids and raising children, I think have become have very been very different. different. Right, right, right. So likely to continue to be very different, seeing in terms of like <laughs> historically low birth rates, all that stuff, which right. is also part in part at least. Well, it's both cultural in terms of what mm-hmm. you're saying of like different expectations, cultural expectations, but it's also economic. Right. Part of it is just like for many people, the idea of being able to economically afford to have children is not a thing. Right. And then you have like, a, and you have like housing and there's a, there's just housing the way presumed social security will work. Right. Like, so if you're, if you're my age, you're going, I've got quite a while before I can realistically retire. Like, even if I were rich, you know, and I'm not. Yeah. So, so like, but I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm 40. 48. So the presumption is I'm going to work 20 more years, right? Like just to be normal, you know, at least till I'm 65, probably till I'm 68. So the presumption is 20 years. And, but like the difference between retirement being 20 years away and retirement being 35 years away is, I mean, yes, I get that it's 15 years different. But it's significantly different, right? Like there's a, and if you're any older, your typical Gen Xer is 50 right now, 55, right? So you've got less time to worry about how much can you stack away in a 401k? Will you be able to, you know, support yourselves once you retire? What will, you know, what about the kids? What about, you know, there's just, there's different anxieties. But then also if you're 25, oh, okay, I just finished school and I cannot find a job because the market fucking sucks. So I'm taking this shitty job that frankly, to listen to a bunch of frankly old people complain about how you're not working hard for your job that doesn't have benefits. Yeah. Like, that's insulting, right? It's a really well, insulting thing. And I think this is actually connected to the other thing I what we talked about at the beginning is like the new thing that's been talked about is like this rage quitting idea. Mm-hmm. And I think a rage lot 
applying too. <laughs> the rage sorry, applying. Rage applying, not rage quitting. Yeah. Which is being, I haven't looked into it as much just because there's been less conversation <laughs> since it's a newer thing. Seems to only mm-hmm. be a few weeks old. But that's been identified as specifically, at least in the conversations that I've seen about it, specifically as a Gen Z thing. And so that basically Gen Z is like applying to tons and tons of jobs. And honestly, the rage quitting thing, I think is even more hilarious than... Well, it's not even that. It's they're it's looking stupid. for competitive compensation. Right. Which is like how you're supposed to Which is jobs. how you're supposed <laughs> to do things. Right. And by the way, that happened to me in 1996 too. This is not a new thing. That's just the way jobs work. And you know what? There was a point where like maybe you could spend 30 years on a job and get a pension, but that stopped happening in 1980. This is not new. Nobody complaining about that now was working back then. And I wonder if some of this is also like culture is catching, like not to say that wasn't the reality at the time, but I mm-hmm. wonder if it's also like culture is catching up to that in a different way than maybe we thought it was like, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, because like, like, were there people at like in like 1980 who like thought that was the like staying in a job like like was the thing i say as like a person who would obviously i was born in 1980 in 1980 yes in 1980 there were people who believed that they were taking a job that they were going to have to the time they retired and there were people who took jobs in 19 in 1980 no it was gone like in that 10 years the 80s decimated the the american workplace and it changed so but even like i'm asking like colloquially were people still like people who were active not talking about like people who were like on the like people who were like in their 30s like in their 30s or 40s who are presumably like when i was graduating from high school the big talk in all the papers was kids are not going to be able to do this thing anymore like that was so and i graduated in 92 people complain about this is not this is like i remember these conversations right when I'm 30 years one of my hypotheses was like maybe culture is like because like culture has a delay like mm-hmm. sometimes we don't immediately respond to something culturally and we continue to recycle something even mm-hmm. if it's no longer true for a while because like everybody's got to catch up and i thought like maybe this was like a lingering version of that but it sounds like not no what because kind of what i want to pick up on with like what you were saying katya with things might like culture might take a second to catch up or things may or may not be cyclical is something that does seem to be like a repeated pattern is as we're trying to describe and as like the discourse is trying to describe what is quiet quitting and is it a thing i feel like is this need and this move to constantly take something that potentially is like structural and make it an individual person's problem because we saw this mm-hmm. with, like okay the weight of your job like even pre unprecedented times is your responsibility with self-care right like we have like this now discourse around okay you cannot like facial mask your way out of a corrupt system or capitalism and all these things. So I think there is something to be said for even if there is something new and there might not be because it might just be cyclical, but if there is something new, I mean, the past three years were shit for most people for most of the time. And if people are tired and just making it, And then the discourse becomes like, oh, you are quiet quitting. I think it's that same knee jerk of like, it is not a phenomenon of people being tired. And like the plus like our current, like, I mean, everyone talks about the news cycle, but like, I think it is still, it is, it wears people down. So I think you are trying to survive, but then the discourse is trying to make it every individual person's problem that they are quiet quitting and then remake that a phenomenon. I don't know if there's anything there, but I think quiet quitting is people respond responding to the fact that we've made it everyone's individual problem yeah because so the other thing that some actually i've seen some articles kind of talk about is like to your point about like the historical moment we all just like frankly survive yeah mm-hmm. some people harder than others it's like every like I, everyone i know for a brief period or can, like potentially for years has some level of burnout and mm-hmm. i think it's like both from a like a health and mental health and physical health frankly perspective and also from a cultural perspective i think it's really important to acknowledge that burnout is not just like tired yeah. like it is a level of emotional and psychological exhaustion that like like in many cases can take years to fully recalibrate from. And I think quiet, like quiet quitting, doing at your wage, whatever. It's like, well, you asked a bunch of people to self-care their way into resilience, which I hate that term that got so overused during the pandemic. <laughs> I would love that it would just be erased from our lexicon. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Like, well, they're doing what you told them to do. Mm-hmm. Like that's the other thing is it's like, if you have workers that are quiet quitting, like, like several things,
things probably just happened. One, you probably didn't give them enough. You're, you're probably not paying them in a way that allows them to keep up with inflation. Right. And or potentially recognize their efforts. One. That's, yeah, that's, oh, that's going to say, one. not just keep up with inflation, make them care about the job, right? Like, well, you know, like, and recognize that many people in many industries just spent like over, like did overkill, mm-hmm. like during the pandemic. It's like everyone's mm-hmm. jobs got exponentially harder mm-hmm. in a variety of ways. And like, mm-hmm. obviously, to this and depending on your industry and depending on your position but in one way or another for most people your job got exponentially harder you were still doing it anyway and like honestly even if you were maintain like like maintaining or doing a little worse in terms of productivity in your job or like whatever your kpis are or like you were doing it under greater duress and like many workplaces did not recognize that duress financially and ultimately this comes down to like we are making a financial exchange mm-hmm. right like when i sign a contract for a, to work at a workplace i am exchange I like this is how capitalism works. I am exchanging labor for money, and that has to like balance out. So like in a way that I'm willing to keep making that deal. Mm-hmm. And basically, what's happening is like, okay, cool. The cost of giving you my labor higher, and that's the thing that basically they're complaining about is like the cost of labor is higher right. because it's harder right now because people are yes. burned out. Like working now, even the same job, same KPIs, working now is harder because people are exhausted. Define KPI for the people. All right, key performance indicator. Basically, if you don't have KPIs in the workplace, it is like usually a metric by which projects and sometimes people are measured on like their success for the purpose of fiscal year review. If Mm -hmm. you meet them, you did your job. If you exceed them, you did your job with bonus. So I want to tie in a little bit, though. You're talking about the cost of labor, right? So here's where here's where. And so we're going to get all Marxist for you. Ooh, it's scary. I think this is the part that the discourse misses. And this is why I actually wanted to do the show when Katya proposed it. But it was going to be hard because people were like, oh, are you going to talk about this? And it's like, well, if we're going to talk about it, we're going to do it in the Vox Poppy way, in, which is going to be nerd nerdy. Yeah. yeah. And but like, I think this matters, right? We're talking about labor buying labor on a Marxist exchange. So what that means, at least from a sociological, socioeconomic point of view, it's not the way people usually think about it, but here's how labor actually works. In a marketplace where people have jobs, I don't work for you. I sell you my ability to do things, right? Like Pitt employs me to, you know, they are buying teaching from me. I like, I sell units of teaching at an, at a yearly, yearly fee, right? Some people work hourly. If I work at McDonald's, I sell you my ability to make hamburgers for, you know, minimum wage, right? So if my jobs become harder and I've continued to do the job, at even at the bare minimum, because you haven't been able to pay me more, that means that what you're complaining about is you are complaining that you are getting priced out of the marketplace. And this is where Mm -hmm. you as the capitalist, as the person, as the employer. And here's where the best example I have for this is during the pandemic. If you go way, way back, you'll remember this point where I actually tweeted at Lindsey Graham because Lindsey Graham made this complaint where he didn't want to. He was worried about the point where they were trying to get Trump to pay people to stay at home. We needed to do a stimulus check and he didn't want it to be too hard because they were trying to keep the stimulus checks not for people who were working, but only for people who couldn't work. And they were like, if we make it too high, if we pay too much then nurses won't go to work because they'd rather stay at home and get the stimulus check than go out and work and risk getting COVID. Like this was Lindsey Graham's actual logic. We have to make it more expensive. We have to pay people less for staying at home because then essential workers won't go to work because they'd rather never met a nurse. (laughs) But that was his logic. That was his logic. Right. Right. His logic was, and I'm like, okay, so your, your, your argument here is it's too expensive to keep people alive because I don't want to pay people the cost of keeping people fucking alive. Like that, like it's an issue that when in capitalism, often the company does not think of the employee as someone who is also in the marketplace. They don't want to. You want to think of the employee as someone who owes you something because then you don't feel as bad about exploiting it. And you this also don't what, have to acknowledge what right. it's the exploitation, but also you don't have to. And I think this is part of quiet quitting and especially the rage applying. You also right. don't want to acknowledge that you are in a competitive market. And in competitive. Right. And this is why we, collective we, bargaining work in sports for is, unions. Right. right. And this is why all of this is like extra mm-hmm. silly because mm-hmm. it's like you guys want to have a capitalism, but you don't want to acknowledge that the workers are also in oh, a capitalism. 
part of the capitalism. Yes. And therefore, <laughs> all the things about supply, demand, and what creates the value of mm-hmm. a thing that exactly. you presumably that's my, run a that's business my flaw on, with it. Right. You don't want to apply to your workers. And it's like, like we are all like, like, no, like you don't, you, you don't get a capitalism and a so, like, it's not even a socialism. Like you, like, what, I don't even know no, what that it's is. it's a feudalism. It would be, it, it would be, yeah, it would be feudalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just want, and, you're right you want serfs who you want serfs who are indentured to you and it doesn't work like that and here's the but problem but you also my, my, don't want to take care of keeping the serfs alive right has been revolted <laughs> yes and i was wondering so like while we were talking i actually pulled the numbers and so this is so weird because you kata you'd asked when when did this stop being true and that's hard to tell like i know anecdotally i know that throughout right. the 80s during the reagan years basically it became pensions became less and less viable. It was the rise of the 401k so that you could take your retirement with you, which actually there's good points to that, but it also makes pensions less viable and people stop offering them and, and it gets complicated, different. But anyway, yeah, for, yeah. right. Yeah. But anyway, my, my, the thing that I'm getting at here is we were talking about how long do people stay on the jobs? And I think that the entire idea of rage applying, because there's people who complain, well, the kids are rage applying. They can't be happy with their job. It's like, no, they're not happy with their job. Honey, you said like, this is what you're taught to do in college is like, you know, it's you I make mean, more money I by was, leaving. I was even taught that in high I mean, even in high school, I was taught that. Right, right. Exactly. So like you're taught that. And I was thinking, well, OK, so I don't know. Can't tell exactly when. But what do you think the average number of years a person in the workforce is in their current job? And I know this. I'll tell now? you. So, yes, right now. Oh, well, okay, no, as in January of 2022, because I don't, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, hasn't published a report yet for, for this year. <laughs> what did you say? I would, yeah, I would guess three. So, yeah, I said okay. two to four. Again, and again, I'm doing for last year, not this year. You're both a little low. And a quick back of the envelope calculations, it looks like <laughs> it's about six. Now, here's okay. where it gets weird, right? Because I'm looking at this, it depends on the person. It's actually much higher like, than I thought is, it was going to be. Right. Well, this is broken is down. Wait, 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 it's is that five what, or is six. Is that in the same job? or for the same company their at their current employer the number of times you're with your current employer so like you as you said you might switch jobs right, keeping the same career in order to get hired so the amount of time that you're with your current employer is it looks like roughly about six years now this is broken down well, you could by, have multiple jobs even for that employer technically technically right, yes, i but, have only worked in my current job for a year i have yes I, it's actually longer than that because i've held two jobs for my current employer same here i, I was a i was technically an adjunct i've only been i've been i've been at pit for two years but i've been in my current job for what but i do think they're but i think they're saying with the current employer. yeah i don't think they're counting lateral or uh, promotions i think they're saying with the current employer because here's where it gets weird they have it broken down by gender and by age group and by college degree right so right so so what i know is um, no this is great by age group which are 20 this is all 25 and older so 25 to 34 35 to 44 45 to 54 55 to 64 and 65 and older right so those are the age groups so I have by right. age group and then I have by education, less than high school diploma, high school, no college, some college, associate degree, bachelor's, master's, doctoral degree. Right. And then I can also break it down by gender. The gender breakdown doesn't matter as much as you probably think it might. But a little bit. Women are always obviously, obviously, because you guys live in America and you know how sexism works. Obviously, the women for the most part, have slightly lower. <laughs> what? I said, I, in a breathy voice, I was just like, tell me how sexism works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the, the, the women's numbers are slightly lower, but the big difference is, so if you have a doctoral degree or a professional degree, and you are over the, over the age of 65, okay? So if you're a doctor, you've got a PhD, you're over 65, the average is 19.6 years you've been with your current employer. I'm surprised. That's not surprising. If you, so, if you so are, basically, if, if you're a professor. If you are a professor, if you are a professor over the age of 65, I'm being very, yeah. if you're a professor over the age of 65, you've likely been there for 20 years, 19.6. Well, and, and I that's because like a professor, because like in that age bracket. A full professor, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, it doesn't get that. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's just saying people, at mm-hmm. least who... Meredith. <laughs> obviously, I mean, so for the listener, part of the reason why we're saying that just because they're over the age of 65 and they have a PhD, we're saying they're a professor is historically, it is unusual to get a PhD and do anything other than be an academic. Now mm-hmm. it's comparatively more common. Which is why... Like, I would be surprised, actually. I think it's still... Well, 
the STEM fields make it kind of complicated because like right. it's more common to go into, it's more common to work outside of university with certain STEM fields. But on the whole, if you get a mm-hmm. PhD, you are going to go be a professor. Yes. Now here's where it gets weird. Packet. Whereas when you get younger, that's not true. That's what I'm going to hit because like, so, okay. So if you're 65 or older, likelihood that you've been the same, like 19.6 is the average amount of time that you've been at your current employer. If you are between 55 and 64, that number drops down to 14.5. It is, you know, a, it is low, a, a little lower, which makes sense because, hey, you're five years younger. So you've been there five years less time, right? Nobody else on the chart of any education or age group is over 10. Yeah. No, yeah. everyone else, like, like I found, I found PhDs age 45 to 54. They're at 9.2. Everyone else is in the four and five range. Everyone else so in the, in, is in the, with the rest of the market effectively. Yeah. So like, it, so, so it is a myth that like, when I say that, like about like, it's been, you know, however longer the entirety of regardless of what age you are, regardless of what age you are and how much education you have, apparently you've been at your job roughly five or six years, unless you have a PhD and you're over the age of 55. Everyone else is lower. So like, like, so like if you're also funny, but it's like, because like for that to be true, that 19.5 years, like with a doctorate, Mm -hmm. not only do you have to be in a very specific demographic, but you have to be in a, because like, does it say like how many people that specific one is based off of? No. Well, I'm sure if I read the entire report, but I'm skimming while we're on the air. Sure. But, but, but mm -hmm. but basically it's not only that, but you also have to be in a very specific. And I'll show you, and just to show you, I'm going to, I want to. Tenure exists. And especially for people that, age tenure means effectively not entirely job forever. job forever you all you, there are very few circumstances in which you can be fired and layoffs aren't real right which is why so like they're there because it, it's not a financially viable situation to move so i'm gonna go mm-hmm. instead i'm gonna go with 25 to 34 year olds right so people who are zennials or young millennials right now right mm-hmm. so i'm just gonna and i'm just gonna go through all of the i'm gonna go through for 25 30 to 34 year olds here's how long you've been at your job based on your education level if you have less than a high school diploma 2.8 years if you have a high school diploma 2.7 if you've had some college 2.9 if you've got an associate's degree 2.8 If you've got a bachelor's 2.8, if you've got a master's 2.8, if you've got a doctorate, it's literally, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your education level is. You've been at your current employer two to three years if you're 30. If you're 40, it goes 4.7, 3.9, 4.5, 4.3, 4.4, 5.1, 5.1, It doesn't matter. Like, like it's literally four years for everyone on the chart. That's why I was like, probably averages out to about six. And because the only people on the chart who stay somewhere on average for more than 10 years are much older people who are presumably in tenured academia jobs. It's the only way this chart makes sense. And I haven't read the entire study. I probably will later but i'm just reading the chart right now and it's also like because i mean one of the other things is especially for the phd demographic it's probably a comparatively much smaller sample of people because what two percent of the population of the planet has even tried right well and like but even then like two percent of the population now right right like when you go back historically yeah most of them are younger i mean think Mm -hmm. about like like yeah and also interestingly if they're over 65 and have a phd the vast majority of them are probably also white men which would be interesting Uh, to know how that statistic works yes well i can tell you that if you're, and I don't know race by this chart, Unless it's probably in there somewhere, in the study. but I can't, yeah, I'm sure it's in there somewhere, but, but I'm on the page that I'm in. I can tell you that if I break it down by gender, people with PhDs who are over the age of 65 and are male are likely to be in that job for 18.9 years and female it's 20.1 because presumably they did not leave. It's probably a smaller sample mm-hmm. size, but I, but it's like a, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing it's like, up. Hey, I got a 10 year job. I'm not going anywhere. You know, is, is where that was. And there's going to be very few uh, of that age better now, but of that age, yeah. it was much harder to get a PhD as a woman 40 years ago. So okay, students, they're, they're not losing. <laughs> right. right. It's like, it's like, you can have oh. this when you pry it from my cold day. You know, if we go back to our episode where we talked about the chair, you know, where we talked about this on that episode, Kathy, where we're like, yeah. Oh yeah. We, <laughs> we had a whole show about it. It. But like, well, but yeah, the entire thing there was there were these, you know, they like one of the subplots was there were several professors who were old and they were just like, can't you retire? And they're like, oh, no, I'm staying forever. I don't care if there's only three people in my class. I'm staying forever. Well, <laughs> because- and this, this, the fact that there's no difference in degrees actually brings me to another thing I want to talk about that I referenced earlier is in a lot of the articles, and I would be very interested in other folks' impressions of this. In a lot of the articles I read, there was an excessive emphasis on office work culture. 
such that it's not explicit, at least not in the articles that I read. So if there's an exception, please tell me. But there was not an explicit note of like quiet quitting, what we're defining it as being a specifically white collar thing. But the overall impression when I was going through these articles was that is implied because there's an emphasis on office work culture. And this is even true actually in the Gallup poll. There's an emphasis on office work culture and remote work culture and trying to understand in the Gallup poll specifically, it was like trying to understand like how remote work impacts this, which I think is why it doesn't talk about class in quite the same way or education levels in quite the same way because it wasn't the focus of their, what they were trying to understand. But that I find curious that we're talking, because like presumably you're focused on office work. You're also implicitly most likely talking about salaried workers. Yes. And my thought for this, which is the Musk problem. And I think to your point, Mav, you were talking about earlier about like, what is like, what's producing the anxiety is I think there's actually like, to me, that says it's not that this is not ha- like this same phenomenon is happening with, with hourly workers, but the anxiety that is the fact that it's happening with salaried workers. And this, and I think that's what gets back to the interesting thing about salaried work in general is that like, you're not really paying like as an hourly work, like an hourly job in terms of if you're talking about the significance in terms of like meaning. Mm-hmm. Cause like when you're in an hourly job, you are exchanging a finite resource, which as Matt was saying is connected to like the things you can do, but you're also exchanging in a much clearer way time for dollar and you know if i work at mcdonald's i'm probably not really it's hard to work at mcdonald's remotely right like there's no point when i'm at home where i'm really becoming a right. better fry cook that's not well, a thing. that and you are there for like there's more surveillance you are there for a eight hour let's say an eight hour shift 10 hour shift mm-hmm. whatever it is as a shift like you are more most likely to be a shift worker you are there for a trackable finite period of time like yes. finite period of defined time mm-hmm. and there is a def- find value that is given to that salaried work some of that is still true yeah some of that is also not classicism of like if something goes wrong in an hourly like job bad people will assume like that's the way it is you know like there is already a denigration of like the human worker in that space that mm-hmm. now is like being ricocheted up because like now it's like oh my gosh all the people who said that they were really passionate about budget reports are not you know like to get the job like, it's, awesome. in terms of like yeah what you're told to do when my you're biggest flaw is that i care too much <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like but to your point katya it's like it is not demarcated the same way so i didn't want to cut you off too much but no, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. and but i think the interesting thing about this is like i want i wonder if some of the anxiety is about the ambiguity of salary work mm-hmm. and the idea because like i you know i'm a salary employee there is an Im- implicit hourly rate i can even see in my picture mm-hmm. like there's an implicit hourly rate that i'm that, that, that works the same way as in the calculation and the budgeting that works the same way as like the shift worker at an hourly job but i'm not actually being paid hourly mm-hmm. i don't enter hours most salary workers don't although some do Add a little bit when you're done yeah and so i'm not actually being paid for time i am being paid for expertise and yes. output mm-hmm. and so i'm not so like how much i get paid is not based on did i clock in and clock out and i did it an amount of hours and is my manager happy mine is my it still is my manager happy with me to some degree so i can keep my job but also did i do the thing did I meet the purpose of my position mm-hmm. in some sense? Which for me as a research, it's like you can quantify in lots of ways of like how many research reports that I would produce. Did the project I was assigned to succeed or do better? Like all, there's all kinds of ways you can measure it, but it's much more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And especially in a remote work environment where like, uh, well, backing up, even in an open office environment, there is, I would argue, if you are salaried, less surveillance, even if you're in a cubicle, even if you're in an open floor plan. And we can talk about the architecture of open open office buildings. It's actually a fascinating history I got into several years ago because it is connected to surveillance and all this fun stuff. Like even in that, you are probably, le- you well, not probably, in most circumstances, you are less surveilled than an hourly worker in most situations. There are exceptions, mm-hmm. obviously. And then as you go up the quote unquote food chain, there's even less surveillance if you become the person doing the surveillance. That's beside the point. In a remote work environment, there is very little surveillance. Mm-hmm. And many of the efforts that employers have taken to claw back some of that surveillance have been deemed illegal, which is super fun. But because of that, it's like we're dealing with this thing of like before we could make that proxy of hourly work to output for a salaried worker much easier because you could see when people came in and came out. Mm-hmm. That's not really true anymore. And so now you have to go entirely off of other metrics. And like you could, in theory, from an hourly perspective, quiet quit. And if you maintained everything, the employer doesn't your employer doesn't know that. Right. And I think some of that anxiety is like, oh, I'm actually only paying for four hours of that time 
time. It's just in the current setup, they can get four hours. Like they're doing what they used to do in 40, 60, 80 hours in 20, 30 hours. Right. And I Which think is, that's part of it. And then the anxiety comes because because that's being exposed. And so the company feels like it's being cheated. It's not being cheated. It's no, just that the system, the system was stupid to start with. So here's my so best way. Not, of it, yeah, You got what you paid for. The way you were yeah. getting it before is wildly inefficient. Right. And the fact that so many remote workers are more productive at home feels like you're actually benefiting. Dis- yes, dis- by a lot, by a lot. So here's how I can. So I've had before before I was an academic, I used to be a designer. I'm going to just to make the math work out. I'm going to say you are a salaried employer at some kind of billable job like mm-hmm. for me, a designer. But like you could be a lawyer, you could be it doesn't matter. Right. But some job where you work for a firm and that firm bills other people for for hours. So I'm going to say you're that you make. a year. I picked that number very intentionally. $52,000 a year means that you are making $25 an hour. That's And it's a very simple number to make. It comes down to saying you make $1,000 a week, right? Like that's just the billable hour because it will make my math work out really well. In order to make that work, because you're not really, for most jobs that are salaried, you're not doing anything that is actually hourly. That's why they don't pay you that way. They pay you $52,000 because it doesn't make sense to actually figure out, oh, is he literally doing work right now or is he thinking about work or what? Right. Because like if I'm a designer, how much of my time am I actually doing work? I'm probably thinking about my project, you know, while I'm having dinner in the back of my head, I might go, oh, shit, I got it. And I might make a note down. And I did that like literally all the time. Hell, as a teacher right now, right? Like there Mm -hmm. are things that, oh, okay, I know what I want to work on tomorrow. I want to tell my kids this. I want to like there's like it doesn't make sense to actually bill me hourly to actually pay me hourly. So they don't. But because we live in a weird capitalist system system that we needed to be able to have one company charge another company. The most common way one company charges another company is by billable hours of our employees. They do this with designers. They do this with lawyers. And this is why if I'm being paid $25 an hour, then my billable rate is $100 an hour because the company that I work for knows that if it only charged $25 when they could to one of their clients, when they could prove that I was doing effectively billable work, you know, uh, since 75% of my time, I can't do that. Like Katya said, like you don't necessarily write all of your hours down, right? So I would write hours down if I were doing something explicitly for an employee. Like I'm literally typing right now. I'm literally drawing something right now. If I'm doing something for a specific client, then I can do that. So they just estimate that probably I write down like one fourth of that. So let's say we'll bill Mav's time at $100 an hour to the client and we will pay Mav $25 an hour. And that's where profit for companies happens. So mm-hmm. same thing with a lawyer. If a lawyer is, if a lawyer's billable rate is $500 an hour, they're not getting paid $500. Their firm's getting paid $500 and they're making a hundred of that or or whatever, right? Like it's some- And even if you were like running your own company, your billable hours and the money you actually take home looks very different. Very different, like, right. Even if right. like that's all the money, because it's like, you, you, like if, even if you are a mm-hmm. team of one and you are your own boss, like there's still expenses and overhead and all this other blah, 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 blah. Right, but it's always been a fiction. That's the weird thing, mm-hmm. right? So like when I was a contracting designer and I was literally working by myself, I had to be very specific about that because now I'm no longer hourly, right? Like I'm a 1040 employee, not a W2 employee. So I have to literally bill you exactly what I think my time's worth. And that's way harder for everybody. Mm-hmm. But for all salaried employees, it's always been this weird myth. And oh. it's the same thing as before with it's like being on the capitalist side, basically the pandemic and everybody switching to work from home made companies very aware that they're not really being cheated by the system. They're just, they became aware of the ways in which the system's not fair to them as well. No one cares if you're being unfair to the worker, but they don't want to feel like they're being exploited. So they're pushing back. And I wouldn't say that they actually are being exploited, but I said, but I'm saying they feel like they are because of that loss of control. And it's not even like the cheating. I think it's like, it's like exposing the fiction. Right. I've written about this in the virtual reality context. We don't like, like there's lots of fictions. We just agree to agree on every mm-hmm. day. We don't like it when someone points it out. Like, like the fact that your employer could be your family when they just actually have complete control. 
control of your livelihood and <laughs> never be exploited by you, the worker. <laughs> right. Exactly. I think that's a lot of it. Is it's like we're talking about this fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the other like it exposes this fiction we have this anxiety. And I think it's also like in our brains, even though the same problem pertains to hourly work and salaried work, we have this assumption that people who are paid hourly are lower paid than they're like it's not important, blah blah blah. Which a like never true that's not important, but because we need a lot of things to make society function, guys. But then also like it's not always true that it's lower paid either. But I think that for some reason in our brains, even though everything you just said is true of both salaried and hourly work. For some reason, our brains, I think salaried work and like how you put a price on it makes our brains go like, Ugh. and so when you see things like, you know, Gen Z is rage quitting and getting like 30000 $40,000, $50,000 raises effectively, they're like, well, that can't be true because like their work can't suddenly be worse that much more money and it's like oh it absolutely can't because all of this is made up and also like maybe it wasn't worth it to their previous employer it's absolutely true to their current employer employer. the reason i know that is because they just signed the check right it's also stupid because what they're what you're essentially saying is you don't want people to class shift right because what probably so by the way most people don't get thirty thousand dollar raises that's a big raise most people don't get thirty thousand dollar raises for lateral moves probably they were being undervalued at one job and either got a promotion with that move because they were being undervalued and they went somewhere where they weren't undervalued or they literally went into their field, right? Like it's really easy to get a $30,000 raise. If you go from being a barista to a lawyer, you know, (laughs) like if you already have the law degree and you quit, you know, like that, or like there are, I mean, there are a lot of people who even moving from like an adjunct, to a full-time professor or instructor or even from like a junior to a Mm -hmm. senior in your field yes those these are things that give you more money and if you if people are rage applying rage quitting rage anything right if they're leaving just for more money then your argument is well what it becomes is well they didn't have loyalty you're right they didn't have loyalty and neither do you because if you had loyalty you would have fucking paid them more like loyalty is not a thing on a free market Right, right. And that's kind of about, unless you pay me for that loyalty. Like, mm-hmm. and then that's the thing is, guys, if, if you want loyalty to count, you have to give it market value in right. a capitalist system. You're not, if you're not giving raises and all these other things, you're not assigning loyalty market value. Mm-hmm. Therefore, as far as this transaction is concerned, loyalty does not exist. It's, well, it exists for you. It's unless worthless you to the employee. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. right. It, but, that's, but that's the thing is, it's like, it's not a, it's not part of the transaction unless right. you pay for it. Because what right. you're, like, basically what they're saying is, I want loyalty to exist without assigning it market value and it's like well the market doesn't care if you're not going to give it if you're not going to give it a dollar amount or some Mm -hmm. exchange then it doesn't no that's not how that's not how market works (laughs) i'm not an economist but even i know that marxism yay (laughs) you work i just so we've resolved nothing we've resolved that this doesn't really exist i mean it does exist but only in the way that it always has that's why it's frustrating to me because this is old men yelling at clouds is what it is it's people complaining that it wasn't like this back in my day when yes it was like that back in your day if you're alive and in the workplace today it was like that and either you've forgotten or you didn't notice because you're too rich to realize that you've been exploiting people right or you worked in a job that was an exception to the rule (laughs) even then i'd call that being too rich right like so sure maybe you have always worked at a co-op owned company and you've got ownership you know you get dividends you get stock and like you've had this job for 30 years and you hit the fucking jackpot in 1993 and now it's 2023 and you're in great shape that's not most people i would call that being exceptionally lucky and exceptionally well off and privileged even if you're not wealthy like if you're not super wealthy it's a it's still a you know if you can't see that wasn't the case for all of your peers in 1993 then you are too privileged by not being able to see that because even if you are even if you are a 50 or 60 year old white man who's rich i refuse to believe that you didn't know somebody from college or high school or whatever who didn't hit the jackpot that you hit even your other 60 year old white friends like <laughs> like like you know people who weren't as lucky as you you're choosing to ignore them because they don't fit the narrative, the fiction, as Katya said, that you want to live your life by. You're asking people to implicitly buy in to neoliberalism so that you can justify it. You want to be able to justify a class-based system. Capitalism only works if you exploit somebody. This is a different conversation, but that's the entire point of free market capitalism is not that everybody gets rich because if everybody's rich, then nobody's rich. The entire point is that 
you know, how can I get as rich as I can while keeping other people poor enough for my goods that I want to purchase, in this case, labor, are still affordable to me so that I can maximize my own value. That's literally fundamentally how capitalism works on all levels. And the complaint right now is that, well, the people at the bottom are supposed to figure that out. <laughs> That's the complaint. And you had the most educated generation in history as you're like growing for part of your workforce. And I don't even know if they all figured it out. They either figured it out or they're just sick of it right now because, you know, it's been a rough couple of years. Yeah. And we all had time to like, you know, read books. And I think also, and I know we're wrapping it up, but I think also talk to each other in a way mm-hmm. that I don't know that a lot of like, obviously we've all been using social media, but for a very long time, but I think like many things, and this is just very subjective. I don't have data to back this up, but the tone of social media and how people were using it shifted. And I think like it became part of the way that people reevaluated how they were living their lives and learning from other people of other experiences. And in some cases, actually like looking at research, like I saw people like the amount of people mm-hmm. I see like engaging with data, like people who aren't researchers, this is not part of their job, engaging with data about some of the stuff we talked about today, I find fascinating. And like, in some ways, I'm making a joke about like how we're, you know, millennials are the most educated generation to have ever existed. But when you have millennials and Gen Z, it's like not only you have people who are trained in how to conduct research and ask these kinds of questions and execute it, but then you also give them access to the internet is it's like people can like encounter problems and research them in a way that we haven't really seen at this scale, Mm -hmm. nor have we seen the consequences of it. And I think this is one of them. (laughs) Yep. Ani, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Anything you'd like for people to know about, promote, or anything on your way out? My gosh, promote. Okay, in a year, I would love to promote a novel that I will have to write, but that won't help you or me right now. Actually, okay, (laughs) I have a thought, and I don't know if this is gross or not because we were just talking about capitalism, but one of the companies I work with is probably actually like within the context of a gross capitalist system, doing it as best they can. It is a company that will help small businesses market them themselves it's called marketing unlimited so if you are a small business and need a website or you just need to become search engine optimized so people see you check them out marketing unlimited in the show notes thank you for letting me promote something because i I had something to promote (laughs) (laughs) well if you want to see somebody promote nothing katya yay (laughs) do you have anything that existence existence is nice Drink your coffee and pet a fuzzy animal this week. It's good for you. Is that an acceptable thing to promote? Can I do it right? Yes. I mean, technically, you could, if you pet a fuzzy animal and you take a picture of it, you could technically send it to me at just that nerd kid on Instagram. Will it benefit you in any way? No idea. Make you feel better. Well, as a person who sends you fuzzy animal pictures, it benefits yeah. me because it warms my heart to know that you're going to get to see it. So, Aww. so <laughs> I think, yeah, but not in that gross argument about altruism being self-interested because I reject that. <laughs> I, mean, I think in this case, altruism can be both. So go pet a fuzzy animal. Or if you're allergic, a not fuzzy animal. Snakes also count. Snakes are actually adorable. Pet a snake. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. All the places always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next next week which i think is gonna be movies about differences between well capitalism class (laughs) division hannah wrote a blog it's up right now so if you go to www.voxpopcast.com you can see hannah talking about the menu and glass onion and us and other class conscious movies that she wants to talk about ready or not i know this happens i happen to know is just one of her recent favorites and i think that's what we're talking about next week unless something big happens since we recorded this episode or i just screwed up the order of episodes both of those things have happened before so that's probably next week's show but beyond that you can leave us comments on this or any other show and you can suggest topics that you'd like to hear us talk about and sometimes we pick guests for different episodes from comments on the blogs so you should do that If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. It really helps us out, especially if you leave us a five-star review, not just a rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That boosts the algorithm, makes us more popular, and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside without seeing a snake. 
I don't know. <laughs> I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, Building Ever So More Epically and Playing Us Out. I'd once again like to thank Ani for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.